Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Ronald Smith, author of Wounded Lions, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky, and the Crises in Penn State Athletics. Ronald Smith, author of Wounded Lions, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky, and the Crisis in Penn State Athletics. Why'd you write the book? Well, that's interesting. Um, I taught for 28 years at Penn State University. My office for a number of those years was in Recreation Hall, the same place that all of the men's uh, coaches were. So I got to know people like Jerry Sandusky a little bit. Joe Paterno a little bit, a number of other people like Tim Curley, the athletic director. And when this thing broke in November of 2011, I was really shocked because I knew Jerry Sandusky. Actually, of all of the coaches at that time, I liked Jerry Sandusky the best of all of them. I thought he was a terrific guy, a person you'd like to have as your next door neighbor, and I didn't know major problems that he might be having personally. Uh, and so I said, what was it at Penn State in our administration of athletics that might have allowed something like this to go on without anyone saying anything about it, uh, even when they knew about it? And so I was very curious as to historically what happened in Penn State athletics that might give us a clue on how Penn State would react to the Sandusky scandal when it broke on November 4th, 2011. What did you teach? I was on the, what was originally the physical education faculty. It changed names a couple times and ended up like almost every other place, kinesiology, so that people wouldn't know what it was. What is kinesiology? <laughs> Kinetics is movement, study of movement, like anyology, study of something. Um, and so I was on the faculty, I was hired, most of my degrees, my undergraduate degree was in history at Northwestern, which is in the Big Ten, as many people know, usually losing. Uh, and my graduate uh, master's degree was in history at the University of Wisconsin. And a professor in the physical education department said, if you're interested in sports and you're interested in history, why don't you combine the two, get a PhD, and teach? It's a beginning. There, uh, there are a few places that have sport history. So I was teaching sport history after getting my PhD at Wisconsin at Penn State University, which had an opening for a person looking at sport history. I happened to be looking principally at the history of intercollegiate athletics. and so. That's where it came from. And so I'm in this building with people in this big time athletic department and I was never going to write 
about Pennsylvania State University history. I wasn't going to do it in part for political reasons. You just don't really want to write about your own institution. And I was writing about it, and I've written five books on intercollegiate athletic history. And so when this scandal broke, it sort of forced me into thinking, well, I know quite a bit about Penn State, and I know quite a bit about intercollegiate athletics, and maybe I can combine the two. And so I spent two years in the Pennsylvania State University archives looking historically, going all the way back to the 19th century, looking at how Penn State administered intercollegiate athletics. Did you become a, a Penn State football fan while you were there? From 1968, when I joined the faculty, that was two years after Joe Paterno became head coach, I got on the faculty, so I was in the same building with him. From 1968 until well, until the 21st century, I had season tickets. And I must admit, uh, I shouldn't do it here, but I must admit that I dropped season tickets at Penn State because I really was bored with the offensive strategy of Joe Paterno when he was coaching. I knew he was a great coach, but I could call the plays. I knew that he was going to run up the middle of the first two plays, and then if he didn't have enough yards, pass on third down. I could call a pass, and, and it was just boring for me. Uh, and then they changed offensive coordinators, and they became more interesting after I dropped the, the tickets. But yeah, I went for uh, almost 40 years, 30-some years. As a professor there, are you sort of expected to be a football fan? I don't think you're expected to be a football fan. Many people are, and depends upon, I don't know how many people in the theater arts department are interested in football. But some of the professors are, and they go to the games. Uh, I was never expected to go to the games. I did it in part because I knew that football, by far, is the most important college sport. I better know something about it, and so I'm going to go to these games, and I'm very, very boring at football games. I don't say anything. It's one of the reasons my wife didn't really want me to, uh, didn't want to go to the games with me because I'm so boring because I watch what the coach is doing. I watch specific players. And I don't say very much, uh, but I wasn't expected to go. I went, and I went to a lot of basketball games, women's field hockey, uh, women's volleyball, which I still go to almost all of their games, uh, soccer games. I went to a lot of different sport events. So for someone who has never been to a Penn State football game, can you describe the atmosphere of game day? Well, that's an interesting thing because even when I was going to all the games, I would get there about two minutes before kickoff. So I never, ever went to a, a tailgate party although I talked to people and I could see that people who weren't going to the games were still tailgating during the whole game. It's a very exciting thing to, for a person, especially I've gone to some games with people from, from international people who were professors and I'd go to the game with them and try to explain what the heck is happening. And uh, it's very interesting to them why 107,000 people might be going to a Penn State football game, and they ask some very strange questions on 
why do you pay athletes to go to school? Which is a very good question, but I sort of know the answer. What is the answer to that? Of all of the activities that are, of all the activities of a university, academic and non-academic, sports are the most important, and football is by far the most important of all those sports at most institutions, not all. I think Duke would say basketball is more important than football. And a few other schools might say the same thing. More important than academics? Oh, by far. That's, you, you, don't, you never get 107,000 people wanting to come to Penn State to listen to, um, say, Brian Lockwood talk, talk about <laughs> Pennsylvania books. You would never get 107,000 people to do that. But you get 107,000 people to come to a football game. It, there's an excitement. There is a camaraderie, there's an esprit de corps. All of these things, in my estimation, intercollegiate athletics have been unbelievably important in higher education in America. They have brought masses of public to a university, maybe not for academic reasons, but it gives a legitimacy to what's going on there. People think it's important because they, Football is important, and this was true of Harvard and Yale and Princeton in the 19th century. They were the big jock schools of the 19th, 19th century, it, and eventually ended up where mostly state universities became dominant, and my little old Northwestern, a private school. Does, does uh, college football and success in college football help academics, or are they, or are they two completely separate worlds? In my estimation, they help because Penn State has always been supported financially, not very much anymore, by the state government. And state legislators like football and basketball. And so it brings those two together and it can't hurt unless we do something terrible as a university, like having some major scandal. That can, that can hurt, but for the most part, it, it's unbelievably good publicity uh, in the newspapers, on television, on Pennsylvania books. It's important. When did it get to be so big? Athletics became big. Well, I'll surprise you with something. One million people estimated came to an athletic event in 1869, four years after the end of the Civil War. It happened when Harvard was invited to row against Oxford in England on the Thames. And they estimated a million people came to see that contest, to see which one Harvard representing America, Oxford re representing the best of England, uh, who would win. Well, England won, but uh, it's been really big. Forty-some thousand people came to see a Thanksgiving Day game in the 1890s in New York City. Is that big? I think it's bigger than what it is today. 40,000 then is much bigger than 107,000 today. When did it get so big at Penn State? It became big, depending upon how you define big, in the 1890s. But by the, by the 1920s, 
It was very big at Penn State, although not as big as at a place like Princeton or Yale, which had a 70,000-seat stadium. We might be able to get 10,000 at Penn State. But if you look at where Penn State is located, you understand why they might not have 107,000 then. You say in your book, one can argue that the two most significant football coaches in Penn State's history have been Joe Paterno and Hugo Bezdek. Now, who was Hugo Bezdek? You don't know who Hugo Bezdek was? Well, not until I read the book. Hugo Bezdek was born in Czechoslovakia and came over with his parents to Chicago. He eventually went to the University of Chicago where Amos Alonzo Stagg was coach in the early 1900s. He was a star fullback on the team. He also did some professional boxing, which would sort of make him ineligible, but nevertheless, he played. And then he started coaching, at first at Arkansas, and then at the University of Oregon. And then he, because he was a really good baseball player and was a scout for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and the Pirates were the worst team in the world, except maybe for the Washington team, Senators, he was asked to coach the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team. And he brought them from the bottom, which would have been eighth, up to four in a year. And it made him sort of a star there. And so Penn State heard about him, knew that he had coached at Oregon, where he had taken a team to the Rose Bowl twice. And uh, they hired him right toward the end of World War I. So 1918, he coached until 1930. Hugo Bezdek was younger than Joe Paterno with a 30-game undefeated streak. That, like Joe Paterno, made him an honored icon in the area. So he was great at everything except two things. One, he had a bad personality. Um, and Two, he couldn't beat the University of Pittsburgh regularly. So he played them, I think, 12 times and won one game. So by the end of the 1920s, even though he had this undefeated streak of 30, and his salary went up from $4,500 to $14,000 with a $2,000 bonus, more than the president was paid in the 1920s, because he couldn't beat Pitt, by the end of the 30s, they said, we got to get rid of Bezdek. And at the same time, only a little bit before that, Penn State decided to do away with athletic scholarships. Most people don't know that Penn State was giving out athletic scholarships by the Board of Trustees, first in the nation, to give out athletic scholarships in 1900. And they had these scholarships, and they were giving out 75 of them in the 1920s. And then, because of various factors, they decided to do away with athletic scholarships. Anyway, Bezdek couldn't win. And they, instead of firing him, they got rid of him, created a school of physical education and athletics, and made him dean of it, which is not unusual to take somebody who isn't doing the job moving them up and uh, paying them as much or more 
and uh, give them another position. Well, you mentioned about athletic scholarships, and you say that you refer to the great experiment as opposed to the grand experiment under Joe Paterno. The great experiment was an attempt in the 1930s and 40s to remain in big-time football with winning teams but not recruiting athletes with the lure of athletic scholarships. How'd that work out? Well, unlike Joe Paterno's grand experiment, which to a great extent I think worked out, the great experiment of trying to win in big time college sport without giving athletic scholarships was almost determined to be unsuccessful because you need good athletes. And if many schools are giving out athletic scholarships as they were in the 1920s, either legally or illegally, you aren't gonna win. And you're certainly not gonna be, be able to beat Pittsburgh which was the major rivalry for uh, Penn State. And if they'd kept those games going, still would be the major rivalry. Uh, they just couldn't beat Pittsburgh. And they didn't beat Pittsburgh until 1938, after Pittsburgh decided not to pay its players anymore. They had a salary schedule at Pittsburgh. And at the most, it was about $100 a month. But that was a lot of money in the 20s and into the 30s during the Depression. That was a huge sum of money. So much so that many of the Pitt players got married and they were called the marriage, married team of America in the 1920s and they were winning all the time. Well, if college football makes so much money for the schools, why don't they pay the players? Well, college sports is amateur, quote, unquote, amateur. And why is it amateur? It's amateur going back uh, into the 19th century when the English decided that an amateur is one who did not compete and work with his hands. That was a way of keeping the elite not to have to play against those who worked with their hands, carpenters or farmers or whatever and so they could remain elite and not be somehow have that underclass rub off on them. It came to America too, the amateurism, but we had a different attitude. So we would say, yeah, you're going to be amateur, but it's okay if you get paid a little bit. And uh, we have a different attitude toward uh, upper class in America. This isn't a classless society, but it's much more classless than the Brits and their elites and their aristocrats. Now, when you wrote this book, you, it's not just about the Joe Paterno and Jerry Sandusky. You go back to th through the history of Penn State sports. Why, why do you want to take that approach? Oh, because I'm a historian. I thought in order to try to understand the Sandusky affair, you had to go back historically and look at it. One of the things I did in two years in the Penn State archives was to take every presidential papers and their boxes and boxes of them and to look at how presidents of Penn State dealt with intercollegiate athletics. So I went back through, let's say eight presidents all the way back to George Washington Atherton, 
who was president of Penn State from 1892 until 196. Has a street named after him. And there's a street, a major street through North South Street, uh, named after Atherton. He's probably the most important person in the history of Penn State. In my estimation, Joe Paterno may be the second most important person. Um, and there may be arguments about that. But George Atherton became very interested in athletics as it was growing in universities at the time. What was the time? 1890s. Mostly 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s. George Atherton's son was a very good athlete who starred both in baseball and football at Penn State. And so he played, but George Atherton also was interested in, in athletics and he tried to do things like get money from the state to help build uh, a football and baseball field to build stands there in the 1890s and was successful at this. Penn State had a really good football team in 1894. This is about the seventh year of full-time football at Penn State. They were undefeated going into the last few games of the season. One of their players, a guy by the name of James Dunsmore, was the star on the team. He was a tackle, but he was the strongest guy on the team. And he was failing three classes. The faculty said, you can't play football anymore. Your average is below 65 in three classes. So the club, it was run by students, athletics were run by students at that time, wrote a letter to the president, Atherton, and said, we have three games left to remain undefeated. We're going on a Western trip. The Western trip in the 1890s met Washington and Jefferson in Western Pennsylvania, the Pittsburgh Athletic Club, and Oberlin. In now, Ohio. Oberlin, was beating Ohio State at this time by scores such as 42 to nothing. So they were very good. And they wrote this letter to the president saying, please allow James Dunsmore to go on this trip. We really need him. It'll bring prestige to Penn State. And down at the bottom of the letter is written, okay, essentially it's okay for you to have John James Dunsmore. He went, they defeated all those three teams. It's the first major undefeated season for Penn State, the 1894 season. Now, I call that presidential cheerleading because presidents, almost every one of them, except for one in Penn State's history, were cheerleaders for athletics. The only one that wasn't was a guy during the Depression in the early 40s, during the great experiment that didn't work, but uh, a guy by the name of Ralph Dorn Hetzel, and he was not a big fan of big-time college athletes. Everyone else, presidents across the nation are cheerleaders for athletics. They don't want reform. Well, if they do want it, they're not going to get it, so they go along with whatever's going on now. Now you, you say in your book that in the 1950s, Penn State was seen as a cow college. So how did it go from 
Cal College to what it is today? I thought it was a Cal College when I came there in 1968. And I came from a dairy farm in Wisconsin. <laughs> I know a little bit about cows. When I flew in to do an interview with Penn State in 1968, in April of 1968, I flew into Moshannon Airport up on a sort of the plane on top of the mountains, 20 miles all, it seemed like 80, uh, away from State College. I flew in there and I was told that they have a Jeep to drive the deer off the runway so they can land. And then we got into a car, the person was picking me up, and we drove, it must have been almost an hour to get to State College on these back roads and I came by a 40-something size stadium and looked up and I said, that ain't Big Ten stuff. And it wasn't. Even my Northwestern University had 55,000 come to it. And the stadium is located where cows are. You know, cows are grazing around the field. It was an agricultural college principally, but not entirely. We had engineering, and that's the thing that Atherton brought to Penn State was engineering. And by the early 20th century, we had more students by far in engineering than any other curriculum on the campus. It was an engineering school. Still is pretty strong engineering school. So Cow College was pretty good. It was not a bad name oh, for it. Was it not a slur? Well, I think it was a slur, but it was true. We were kind of a cow college. By the way, Joe Paterno had a, a big part in turning this around because he was the, I think, the major fundraiser for Penn State since the 1970s. You say in here, you mentioned the Big Ten, and you say in here uh, President Bryce Jordan's decision to join the Big Ten was likely more important in raising Penn State academically than anything positive done for athletics. People will some disagree with that because they don't see what the Big Ten did for academics at Penn State. I've been a big fan of the Penn State Library and I was the liaison between our college and the library for a number of years. I sort of judge a university by how good its library is. I now judge it by how good its archives are uh, because I work in them all. I've been in about 80 university archives across the nation looking at intercollegiate athletics. So I look at the size of the library, the holdings of it, and how well it's organized and run. And I look at the university and how it's rated nationally. And we've gone from that cow college and finally a university to one of the major universities in America and our library is now rated eighth in the nation by some rating services and only in the Big Ten are we under uh, I think University of Michigan Library. You say in here that uh, with all the attention Penn State received because of its first national football championship Joe Paterno said the board should not sit idle, but should immediately elevate standards throughout the institution, raise millions of dollars, and among other things, build a better library. So he was the, the 
motivator behind that? Joe Paterno is an interesting person because some people think he's the greatest thing that's ever happened in the world. Other people say he was a uh, child abuse enabler. And, and, and so there's major split between that. But Joe Paterno in terms of raising visibility to Penn State, I think is the most important person. Atherton sort of saved the university in the 1880s and 1890s. Joe Paterno caused in many ways to be the unbelievable fundraiser and he went before the board of trustees at one point and said, we've won a national championship. You ought to get off your butt and start raising money for this university and making it more than it is. And he was able, uh, John Oswald, who was president in the, 18, in the 1970s and in early 80s, didn't want to fundraise. Bryce Jordan came in as president and he had the kind of personality to raise money and use Joe Paterno as one of the fundraisers. And Joe Paterno for three major fundraisers was the major fundraiser. And even the last one that ended in uh, 2014 after he died was to a great extent money that he helped raise for the university. Plus he gave quite a few million dollars, he and his wife Sue, to the university. Now you said that you worked in the same building as he did. Did you encounter him much or was he kind of just in his own world? Well, I, I don't think many people encountered him much. He was, even though you, you might have seen him on television, he looks like this grand guy that can speak to anybody and he's really a loner. Uh, he'd go home and listen to opera from his Italian background. Uh, I didn't see him a lot. I saw him a couple times on committee meetings and I saw him in the one faculty meeting that he attended in my 28 years there. He was a full professor and went to one faculty meeting and that happened to have to do with salaries for assistant football coaches and how much would come out of the physical education department, how much would come out of the athletic department budget. So he wasn't involved in academics. On the other hand, he pushed academics at the university. He wasn't involved in his own college. He never taught a class like uh, Woody Hayes did at, at Ohio State, taught a class. Joe Paterno never taught an academic class in his life. But he pushed athletics and he wanted his, his athletes, his football players, to get an education. And he pushed that strongly. And it's maybe one of the reasons why Penn State had a, quite a high graduation rate for its football players. You talk about that about the grand experiment and he had something like an 80% graduation rate. Was, was that for real or was that mostly image? Well, it's very good for image to have a, a high graduation rate. Anyone who looked to at other it. Big Ten schools? We had, except for Northwestern, which you would guess would have a higher graduation rate because it's a private school and students there may have a little higher grade point average coming in and SAT scores. He, I don't know, the, I don't think the graduate rate was 80%, even though at some time it's been noted as that. 
depends upon how you figure graduation rates. You can go from about 70% to 90% depending upon what figures you use for graduation. Are they the seniors that played that graduated or are they the freshmen who started and ended up and did they graduate? Well, there's 15, 20% difference there. So it depends upon how you figure it out. But we had at Penn State a very high graduation rate similar to the best private institutions in America. And our graduation rate for African-American athletes is about the same as for uh, non-African-American athletes. I want to read you, you mentioned President Oswald, and there was a May 1972 at a Nittany Lion Club meeting. <laughs> Both the president and Paterno spoke President Oswald bragged about his involvement in, athletic, in an athletic agreement between Penn State and the three uh, other members of the Big Four, Pittsburgh, Syracuse, and West Virginia University. After Oswald's talk, Joe Paterno spoke and highly criticized Oswald's agreement with the Big Four. Oswald took it as a slam on his integrity as president. President Oswald told Paterno, if you ever do something in public like you did this evening, you'll be gone. Immediately, Paterno shot back, John, you'll be gone before I am. When did people start realizing that Joe Paterno was the boss over the president of the university? If you are a football coach and you're filling up the stadium and you're bringing in a lot of money and a lot of prestige to the institution and you're the head football coach, you're gonna get a lot of recognition. In 1968 and 1969, my first two years at Penn State, I didn't think we were ever gonna lose, and we didn't. We were undefeated for those two years. Those are the two years that made Joe Paterno. But then he continued to win, and eventually, after another 10 years or so, won a national championship. If you do that, you gain a certain amount of power and if you were Bear Bryant at Alabama, the president was not going to tell you what to do. Uh, and people didn't tell Joe Paterno what to do. He could go to any one of three or four professional teams and coach there. He could have gone to other universities and coached there. And a lot of people don't know that he was offered the head coaching position at University of Michigan uh, in, I think, 1969, and turned it down. Uh, so he has a lot of power. John Oswald didn't have nearly the power. Plus, Oswald had a really negative kind of thing that happened when he was president of the University of Kentucky. At the University of Kentucky, he tried to get Adolph Rupp, the great basketball coach historically at Kentucky, to integrate his teams well after other schools were integrating theirs. And because he would not, quote, bring in a colored boy unless he wanted to, he wasn't going to do it. Oswald asked Rupp, I want you to bring a black in and desegregate our basketball team. And Rupp said, I'll do it on my own terms. And as part of this whole thing and got some state legislators behind him, 
Oswald was fired as coach at Kentucky and he took a position as vice president at the University of California, Berkeley, and thereupon came to Penn State. When he came to Penn State, he, I don't think, wanted to ruffle any star coach, any iconic coach, such as Paterno. And so when Oswald got up before this alumni group and said, boy, this is the greatest thing we've done. We have another agreement of the big four with Pitt and West Virginia and Syracuse. And Paterno, I can imagine, was getting madder and madder. While he, and so he got up and said, this is one of the worst things we have done, President. And I don't think we should have done it. We have aspirations much above West Virginia or Pitt or Syracuse. And so when they went into the bathroom, and I only heard this secondhand, but I'm pretty sure it's true, that conversation went on where Paterno said, you'll be fired before I am. And I think at that time, that was the case. Oswald almost lost his position before that anyway. You also write about Vicki Triponi Trippany. Trippany and her, her clashing with Joe Paterno. Can you tell that story? Vicki Trippany came to Penn State as Vice President for Student Affairs in 2003. She was the first Vice President for Student Affairs who was a woman. And it doesn't sound like a very important position, except if athletes and anyone else in the schools doing something wrong, they are disciplined by the vice president for student affairs. And so you can be booted out of school, you can be penalized for this or that. And Paterno said, no, any football player that's doing something wrong, I will discipline that person, you won't. And Joe Paterno had never worked ever, in, to my knowledge, under any female everything he had done. He went to an all-boys school, he went to an all-men's school, Brown University. He was in the all-male army in Korea after the end of World War II for a short period of time. He worked in an all-male football thing where he wouldn't even allow any of the trainers to be women. Really, it's, everything was all-male. And to have a woman say, no, I'm going to discipline your football players for whatever assaults or drinking on campus or whatever. Joe Paterno said, no, I'm going to do it. And it came down to a fight between Joe Paterno and the Vice President for Student Affairs. Vicki Trippany came out second best in this and was essentially forced out as Vice President. You say it's not clear exactly how much pressure President Spanier put on Trippany to resign, but the departed vice president indicated that Paterno wanted Trippany out of her position or the iconic coach would raise no more funds for the university. That's a story that's out there, and it's probably true, um, that Joe Paterno would say, I, I, you know, I'm raising a billion dollars for you. Get rid of her, or I won't do it. I, I think that that might very well be true. I don't know for sure. Uh, that's why I don't put it down there as for sure, at least from my information. You also tell the story about when Joe Paterno successfully separated 
football from academics. And um, at one point, let's see, uh, you quote, um, who am I quoting? A, a faculty member by the name of Scannell, Dean Robert Scannell, who said, athletics is now strictly a business operation. Bob Scannell was my second dean. And he had, he had been a football player at Notre Dame, he was a really smart guy, got his PhD, and came to Penn State where he got his PhD, but stayed there and he was sort of groomed to become the next dean because he had this good athletic background as well as being a smart guy who was loved administration. Bob Scannell was a person who wanted athletics and physical education to remain in the same area. Athletics was 70% of the budget of my college. The college was of health, physical education, and recreation, and athletics. Athletics was 70% of the budget. He was spending more than 70% of his time on athletics because our athletic director couldn't make decisions, and so Bob Scannell was making decisions for him. And people wanted to get rid of him, and Joe Paterno could not stand the fact that Bob Scannell was making decisions on, quote, his money, which is the gate receipts and television receipts. We had a tradition at Penn State of athletic funds being used for recreational facilities, building an ice rink or an outdoor swimming pool or a golf course or bowling alleys or whatever. And Joe Paterno said, we need money for lights of the field, a new indoor facility for football, and a number of other things. And he didn't want Bob Scannell scaling money off of this to build an outdoor ice rink. And Joe Paterno eventually was asked to be athletic director. And now he could do whatever he wanted because he asked John Oswald, the president, if you want me to be athletic director, you must take athletics out of the College of Health, PE, and Recreation and under Bob Scannell. John Oswald had only very briefly before that said, we have the best model at Penn State. Joe Paterno convinced him to take athletics out of the College of Health, PE, and Recreation, and it ruined the college financially. We eventually, within a couple years, was combined with another College of Human Development. You were there when that happened? I was there when it happened. Actually, I thought it wasn't a bad thing, in part because human development was a really strong science-based thing, and if you know anything about colleges, scientists get paid more than people who are in the humanities. So it wasn't bad being that. I'm in the humanities and I'm pulled along by science, so my salary probably went up. Um, I wanna ask you, so what was the job of athletic director when he became athletic director? How is that different than what he was doing before? Well, the difference was that now he controlled the money. For all? For all, all the sports. sports but he was really only interested in 
football. But he wanted the other sports to do well too. So by becoming athletic director, he could take the money out of my college and place it under a former football captain, a guy by the name of Steve Garbin, in the, as vice president for finance and business. So he took the money and placed it under this former football captain and therefore he could control the money and where it went to build facilities for football, which is what he did. And he only remained there for two years because he accomplished what he wanted to do, which was to get the money away from Dean Scannell and place it under his uh, uh, sometimes drinking buddy, Steve Garbin. Well, while he was athletic director, I think it was, uh, you, you, uh, he hired Renee Portland to be the basketball coach, and you devote a chapter to Renee Portland. Why is she so significant? Renee Portland is a very important person in the history of Penn State. I had to think twice. I wasn't, she was not going to be in the book originally. But as I started writing this book, I found more and more that the isolation of athletics was one of the things that may have caused this problem with the Sandusky scandal, being isolated and do whatever they wanted to do. Renee Portland was part of this. She was the first woman brought in solely to be a, a coach for women. She didn't have to do anything else but coach women's basketball, which is the most important sport. And she won. But what she was doing was illegal under federal law. And what she was doing was getting rid of anyone who she thought was a lesbian or was a lesbian and booted her off the team. You have uh, her three team rules, no drinking, no drugs, no lesbians. That's the rule and the players knew it. No drinking, no drugs, no lesbians. And so she was booting off lesbians until she finally booted off one uh, lady by the name of Harris who was going to take this to court. And when she went to court with the help of an outside organization financially, that she was gonna win because we were breaking our own Penn State rules, Title IX, and due process in, in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. Breaking all of these rules, both for blacks, because Harris was a, uh, uh, African American, and for women's, like under Title IX. And so eventually, Renee Portland had two bad seasons, and uh, the president came in and said, oh, I'm gonna fine you 10,000, which you might have been making a half a million, so it was dropping the bucket, but got into that conflict and finally um, she resigned. And uh, we've gone on with basketball, but she was a very successful basketball coach. Very intelligent person from my standpoint, uh, very articulate, and people loved her in, in, in State College. Not those who, who didn't like her for breaking federal law. I want to read you something uh, you wrote about her, Reenie Portland. It's Reenie? Reenie. Reenie Portland. 
may have shown her sense of self and poor sportsmanship in her first year at Penn State when she commanded her team to score 100 points for her 100th victory as a college coach. And that was against uh, Little Ursinus College. You want me to react to that? <laughs> Insight into her? <laughs> her first year, I'd been there for a while, not a long time. I thought that was bad sportsmanship to tell her players, I'm going to press little Ursinus the entire game so that for my 100th victory as a basketball coach, including uh, St. Joseph's in Philadelphia and, and uh, University of Colorado, she wanted this for pride purposes, evidently. I thought it was absolutely bad sportsmanship. And my feeling is that Joe Paterno would never do that. And I don't, to my knowledge, he may have only run up one score in his life, and that was against Ohio State, and I'm not sure that he ran it up. Anyway, it was a, I thought, really bad sportsmanship. So I wrote her a note and said, this isn't what we do at Penn State. I just think it's bad sportsmanship. And so she called me up and said, let's have a meeting. So the two of us sat down, and I had never met her before that, and we discussed it. I can't remember what all was discussed. I know that was discussed. And I said, no matter what you say, I think it's bad sportsmanship to do that. And I don't think we should do that anymore, to my knowledge. She didn't after that. But it was my way of thinking, I don't like the way this person is coaching. I just don't think that's good for the game to run up a score. I, there's a lot to talk about, but we really haven't touched on the Jerry Sandusky situation. And uh, can you talk about how, what you learned from this? You said you started out trying to figure out how the atmosphere around sports would have led to the Jerry Sandusky situation. Well, I have to admit I was really disappointed when the grand jury came out with this, quote, indictment uh, called a presentment against Jerry Sandusky, and I had no way of even having a thought that Jerry was a child molester. That was completely out of my mind and almost everybody else's mind. Now, there are a couple of people I've talked to since, including my wife, who thought that Jerry was really strange with young kids in swimming pool. Um, I was really disappointed, and then I was really disappointed that when I found out that Penn State knew about this 10 years before the scandal broke and didn't do anything about it. And so I don't spend a lot of time in this book, as you know, on the Jerry Sandusky part of this. I was interested in how did Penn State react to it rather than what did Jerry Sandusky do to cause it. I was interested in how Penn State, because I've always been in, interested in the administration of athletics and how, and that's, I've written about this uh, for almost 50 years. You say right in the beginning of the book, did the leaders of Penn State athletics, Schultz, President Graham Spanier, Athletic Director Tim Curley, and Coach Joe Paterno hope to keep the lid on the media vessel tightly closed? Or were they more interested in treating this not as an assault on a young boy, but as a public relations crisis that needed to be managed? I think 
whether it's at Penn State or at PCN or any place, if there is a problem, and there always are, they don't want this to be let out. And so the, the tendency is to cover up, whether it's an illegal, by law, cover up, or just not wanting it to get out, is a natural thing. And I think if you've ever had children, they always are covering up. Oh, in our family, for instance, Dan would say about Penny was a little younger, she did it. She wrote on the wall. Well, she can't write on the wall. She's one year old. The, the tendency to cover up is natural. And so I think, yes, they were covering this up. Whether that was illegal from a criminal standpoint has yet to be proven, although there will be a lawsuit coming up in March relative to uh, the three major characters, President Graham Spanier, uh, Gary Schultz, Vice President, and Athletic Director Tim Curley. And we'll find out if that was criminal. Uh, yeah, they, they didn't want this to get out, but I think that's natural. It happens at every institution. Did you, did you learn anything new? Did you get any insights into how that works while you put the book together? Well, I probably learned a little bit more about human nature. Although, from my standpoint, almost everything in the world, from a historical standpoint, almost everything is called, caused by negatives. In other words, depressions. Social Security comes out of it. Rural electrification, TVA, and a lot of things. Or wars. After World War II, we integrated blacks into our society because we fought a person, Hitler for instance, who thought there was a pure race. Uh, or any number of negatives that happen in the world cause things to be changed. At Penn State, we are going to look at a bill somewhere around a billion dollars for the Sandusky scandal. Now, the university already admits it's about a quarter of a billion, but I know from listing all of the things that have changed since the Sandusky scandal, there's probably at least uh, three or four hundred million dollars more, and by another ten years or so when this plays out, I, I suspect the bill will come up to a billion dollars. What did I learn? Um, don't cover up. Did the university learn anything? I'm not sure that human nature changes a whole lot. Um, we may have learned a few things. We changed a whole lot of things, some of which are better, some of which are worse. You can't even get into a building now that's a recreation building without a card. Uh, and that's cost us millions of dollars to do that. And, and there are things in the library you can't do anymore that you could do before. There's there's a lot of negatives that come out of this as well as, yeah, we're more attuned to children problems now than they were by far. Uh, one thing you, you write about that I should have asked about earlier is the, the Sugar Bowl loss to Alabama. 
you, you refer to that a couple of points during the book. Does that, was that kind of a, a scarring moment in Joe Paterno's life? In my estimation, Joe Paterno was scarred for life, according to his wife, maybe a year. Um, I'm pretty sure that the fact that Bear Bryant, who Joe Paterno psychologically couldn't beat, Joe, because uh, Bear Bryant was a better coach uh, in Joe Paterno's mind than Joe Paterno was. It scarred him by calling two dumb plays at the end of the game when he could have scored, and the, one of the reasons why I didn't go to football anymore, right up the middle. Their linebacker creamed us. We didn't score, and then got confused on the sidelines, had 12 men on the field, that scarred Paterno. He almost quit coaching because of it, according to him, because he couldn't win that game. Um, yeah, I think it, was, it scarred him for life. Well, there's a lot more we could talk about, but unfortunately, we are out of time. We've been speaking about this book, Wounded Lions, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky, and the Crisis in Penn State Athletics. Ronald Smith, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.